We are nearing the end of David's reign in the Bible. David is probably best known for two stories. Uh, The first and most well-known is when he faced and killed the giant Goliath. The second story is probably his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. In other words, most people know David by his greatest success and his greatest failure. But when you consider the entire story of King David as a whole, he is a very remarkable character. We know he killed Goliath, but David actually killed more than one giant. He and his men were responsible for defeating several giants. You can actually go and read about them at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 21. One of them was even a man with six fingers and six toes on each of his hands and feet. Kind of an interesting little factoid. Um, But only a few short verses are given to us about those battles. David was a warrior king, but his legacy in the Bible is far outweighed by something else. Do you know what it was? David was also a poet. David wrote almost half of the Psalms. And the writer of 2 Samuel wants us to know about this side of David before he ends David's story. 2 Samuel 22 is one of David's longest poems. It is almost identical to Psalm 18, and that will be our text for this morning. It is also going to be uh, the longest sermon I've preached in years. And I'm doing that, and I'm telling you that on purpose. Not not crazy long, guys, but just, you know. I'm a 25-minute preacher. This might be a 30-minute sermon, 35-minute sermon. Anyways, okay. You can't leave now anyway, so you're stuck. Uh, 2 Samuel 22, beginning in verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I don't know if you noticed, but 12 times in three verses, David uses personal possessive pronouns. Yahweh is my God. He is my rock. He is my fortress. And he uses a lot of different metaphors to describe God. And we could talk about each of those in detail. I could have a whole sermon on what it is that God is our fortress. Um, But what I want you to focus on are the personal pronouns. He is describing this inseparable closeness, this deep anchored relationship to the God of the Bible. A dependence upon him. He says it over and over again. Verse 4. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. 
For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of death assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From His temple, He heard my voice. And my cry came to His ears. So David is now describing this dependent relationship with God in practical, prayerful terms. He says, I call and God answers. I need help and God saves. But I want you to notice what this salvation looks like, and it may surprise you. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the Lord were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent for me on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. This picture of God coming down to save David is not the typical image of God that we think of when we think of salvation, is it? And we usually think of our loving and compassionate Savior, Jesus Christ, right? When we hear the word salvation, that's what we think of. It's who we think of. But this picture of God, the Savior, is very different, right? This God comes angry. He is devouring His enemies with fire and darkness and lightning. This God is charging into battle. And no enemy in His path stands a chance. And David understood the strong God who destroys is also the strong God who is able to save him. And again, we don't think of Jesus this way, but I think we should. Jesus was gentle and compassionate and merciful to his sheep, his lost sheep. But make no mistake about it, Jesus was a force to be reckoned with when it came to his enemies. He marched into the temple 
with a whip and cleared out the money changers. He hurled angry insults at the Pharisees, calling them snakes and vipers. My favorite picture of a Psalm 18 Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, is John 11. John 11 is where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But just before he does that, Jesus shows us this, this picture, this moment of righteous fury. And it's easy for us to miss because in English, the text just says he was deeply moved and troubled. But in Greek, that word is extremely unique. It's a word that is used in Greek to describe the snort of a war horse as it charges into battle. And that is our Psalm 18 God. That's how angry Jesus was. But what was he angry about? He was not angry at Lazarus or his sisters. Jesus was angry at sin and death. The real enemies of God and our real enemies. But now we come to the middle of David's poem. And this is maybe the most difficult to understand. Okay, so look with me at verse 21. David says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His rules were before me, and from His statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before Him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in His sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people. But your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Now, we don't know if David wrote this before he committed adultery and murder or after he committed adultery and murder. But it doesn't matter. The writer of Samuel includes this psalm after that story on purpose. Which makes these verses seem like a very bold claim, right? I mean, how could a man like David describe himself as righteous? How could a man who committed murder and adultery say that he was blameless? In fact, David doesn't just say it here. He says things like this in many of his 73 psalms. And not knowing the whole story, it sounds braggy and self-righteous to us, doesn't it? 
But knowing that David actually had some very serious failures makes him sound a little deluded. I mean, only a sociopath would commit such crimes and then declare himself righteous. Right? So how do we explain this? Well, I think first of all, it's important to remember that everything David says about himself in this psalm is only true in relation to the covenant. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David is writing some things that had greater meaning and significance than even he could have imagined at the time. A lot of what he says about himself, of course, is better realized in Jesus. So there's that. But David was also not righteous on his own. And if you read carefully, he's hedging everything he says. It's just, it's subtle. But David was still faithful within the context of God's covenant. As he understood it, and as we later can look back on it from a New Testament perspective, we have even more revelation of God in the person and work of Jesus to make sense of this. But there are hints of this even in the text. Verse 22, he says, I have not departed from my God. Verse 23, I did not turn aside. So in truth, David was sinful like us. But when David was confronted with his sins, what did he do? He repented and returned to his covenant God. He never abandoned that relationship. In the midst of his shame and guilt, he did not distance himself from God, which is often the response of our hearts, right? But instead, he was confronted with his sin and he immediately ran back to God. And it was that covenant union that allowed a man like David to speak with such authority about his blameless status before God. And if you don't understand that, you don't really understand Christianity. Because that's how it works for all of us. It's not about your righteousness. But in Christ, you are righteous in God's sight. This actually becomes clearer as we move on. Verse 29, David says, For you are my lamp, O God, and my God lightens my darkness For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. How is David successful? By God's help. Verse 31. This way, his way is perfect. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the height. So how was David's way blameless? He says it was made that way by my God. He set me in that position. He placed my feet Secure on the heights. Verse 35. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. 
You've given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. Why was David great? Because God made him great. So you see, this is not self-righteousness. What this is, is a very confident humility. This is a man who knows he's nothing without God. But with God, he's unstoppable. Alone, nothing. With God, he's a force. This is salvation by grace through faith in the raw. That's what saving faith does to us. It humbles us. But it also gives us a supernatural confidence in the work of God. Both are true. The seeds of the gospel are sprinkled throughout the Psalms of David just like this. But now we come to the second most difficult part of this psalm. Are you ready? Verse 37. Wait. I already had it up there, didn't I? Sorry. You give a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them, and did not turn back until they were consumed. So David is talking here about actual human enemies that he killed, just to be clear. All right, verse 39. I consumed them, I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Now, this is starting to sound rather barbaric, right? But it gets worse. Listen to this, verse 43. David says, I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. Wow, David. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me at the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. So this is not one of David's more heartwarming psalms. Okay, This is not, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Right? This is not, you have displayed your splendor in the heavens, O Lord. No, this is, I cut my enemies down and beat them into the dust and they served me in fear. That's what he's saying. Now, I've got to be honest, it's kind of difficult to dress this up with bows and ribbons. This is David the warrior coming out in this poem. And I could go back and try to explain again, as I've tried to do many times over the course of Samuel and Judges before it, 
I could try to explain to you why I believe that the enemies of Israel deserved all of the violence that God initiated against them. I'm not going to do that this morning. If you have questions about that, call me this week. We'll talk. But instead, what I want to do is I want to flip this and I want to remind you that David is describing how he deals with his enemies. And it's really the same way that God deals with his enemies in the first half of the poem, right? No mercy. None. And the hard truth about this is that unless we repent, we remain enemies of David's God. I don't want to sugarcoat that. That is part of the message. And in order to make that point really clear, I want to show you the last picture of Jesus in the Bible. Okay, so you've read the Gospels. You've seen the Jesus of the Gospels. Um, you've seen the Holy Spirit dealing with the early church and all through the letters of Paul, all the beautiful things that, that Paul says about salvation. And you get to Revelation 19. This is the last picture of Jesus in the Bible. Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. This is Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So we know this is Jesus because Jesus is the Word, and he has some other name that Revelation doesn't tell us. But this is clearly also Jesus, right? Verse 14, And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now that is literally the last depiction of Jesus Described for us in the Bible. This is Jesus the warrior, right? And then he wins the great battle. And if you keep reading in chapter 19, it says that he wins the battle and then leaves his enemies for the birds. <clears throat> the point being, you don't want to be his enemy. And you don't have to be. The only difference between David and his enemies was repentance and faith in God's covenant promises. That was the only tangible difference. The only way that we, today, 21st century people, human beings, the only way that we escape the wrath of God is repentance and faith in Christ Jesus who was the fulfillment of those covenant promises. And that's because the Bible tells us that Jesus Himself became the bearer of all that wrath. 
He swallowed up the curse of sin and death. It either fell on Jesus for you or it will fall on you. There is no middle ground. But that is good news. It is good news if you hear it and respond in repentance and faith. Listen to how David's psalm ends. Verse 47, The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever. So he ends with good news, right? This is the salvation that God has brought me. And David didn't even really understand everything he was saying. He couldn't possibly have understood the depth of the salvation that God was going to send His own Son to be that King, to be that Savior. Now this is already a lot of words. And I, like I said, I don't, I don't enjoy preaching long sermons, but I want to make one final plea. 2 Samuel 22 is a poem. And the Bible is full of poems. But our culture is quickly losing the ability to appreciate what that means, that genre that is so important in the Scriptures. A pastor friend of mine recently posted a poem by Wendell Berry entitled, How to Be a Poet. And I want to read it to you. It says, make a place to sit down. Sit down. Be quiet. You must depend upon affection, reading, knowledge, skill. More of each than you have. Inspiration, work, growing older. Patience and for patience joins time to eternity. Any readers who like your poems doubt their judgment. In other words, he's saying poetry comes from rest and experience and humility. But he keeps going. He says, breathe with unconditional breath the unconditioned air. Shun electric wire. Communicate slowly. Live a three-dimensional life. Stay away from screens. Stay away from anything that obscures the place it is in. There are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. That's my favorite line. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying get outside. Breathe in God's world. Get off your screens, right? Live and breathe, be in the moment, experience the world that God has placed you in. And this is the last stanza. It says, accept what comes from silence. 
Make the best you can of it. Of the little words that come out of the silence like prayers prayed back to the one who prays, make a poem that does not disturb the silence from which it came. And that's it. And in my attempt to explain this poem quickly to you, I'm really not doing it justice, right? My attempt to explain 2 Samuel 22 in half an hour, 50-something verses of it, doesn't do it justice. Why? In some ways, a lot more is said in 51 verses of a poem than 51 verses of a story. Right? There's a lot there. And that poem, like all of David's poems, all of his psalms, they were written from a lifetime of experiencing God's salvation, of witnessing God at work. And to really understand it, you have to also experience God's salvation, right? And so what I want to leave you with is this. This personal, possessive, pronoun kind of relationship with God that every single one of us deep down is is hungering and thirsting for, whether you can name it and put your finger on it or not, you want more than anything else this deep, valuable, personal relationship with this God. This is what you want. And I can't tell you how to feel that way about God in 30 minutes. I can't tell you how to feel that way about God in three easy steps. It's not possible. Right? And how many of our experiences in churches are about trying to sell you on God in five minutes, right? Walk the aisle, pray the prayer, and you too can have a personal relationship with your Savior. Guys, it is so much more than that. It may begin in some small ways in a moment, absolutely. But this kind of relationship, this personal, possessive pronoun kind of relationship with God does not come that way. It comes from a lifetime of walking with a covenantally faithful God and experiencing His grace over and over again, experiencing His salvation over and over again, experiencing Him showing up in all those moments of your life when you felt alone, when you were suffering, when you felt the enemy pressing in on you, when you felt shame and guilt because of what you'd done or what had been done to you, and He showed up. He was there. He was never not there. So I want us to pray together for God's help to to slow down 
And you know we need it in this culture. (laughs) We need to slow down. We need to rest. We need to reflect. We need to recapture the poetry of the Bible. And reflect on the rock of our salvation. Let's pray. Our Father, regardless of anything that I may have said or left unsaid, none of it matters without the power of Your Spirit. And so I want to ask, Lord, humbly and yet in confidence that You're the kind of God who listens to Your people when we gather in Your name, when we pray, You have promised to hear those prayers. And so, Father, we ask You in humility in the midst of an anxious and chaotic world which is currently fighting and gnawing at one another, searching for meaning, searching for value, searching for purpose. Father, I pray that You would speak to our hearts and and slow us down. Help us to rest in You. Help us to see Christ. Help us to experience Your grace. Help us to worship You in spirit and truth. Not just in one hour on a Sunday, but in each and every moment. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.